I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett recording on a Thursday. And I got to say this before we get going here is the back-to-back day games. I can go for one day game, but for a lot of you that work normal nine to five jobs or seven to three jobs, like this whole back-to-back day game, I'm not on board with that. And then they don't play on Friday. Like the Red Sox played Wednesday during the day, Thursday during the day. And then on Friday, they're not going to play at all because it was opening day for the Tigers. That's just like a little mini rant that I want to get off my chest to begin with. But we had a lot to get into. Speaking of the Red Sox, Chris Sale made his second start of the season on Thursday. We'll talk to Steve Peralt from the ITM podcast about that. But coming up next, Tom Giles from NBC Sports Boston, of course, does the pre and the post game for the Celtics. You also see him on early edition. You see him all over NBC Sports Boston. So we'll get into the C's with him. I have four reasons that I want to run by Tom, why I'm back in on the Celtics winning a championship, why I think that the duck boat should be ready to go. So I'll run those by Tom, see if he agrees on that. And then, of course, Tom covers the Patriots as well. So we'll get into the Lamar Jackson situation and the future of Mac Jones as a Patriot with Tom Giles. That's up next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from NBC Sports Boston, it is Tom Giles. Of course, you see him on the Celtics pre- and post-game show. You see him all over the place. He'll be on early edition today as well. Tom, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. So, hey, before we get into some of this stuff with the C's, what's it like working with Eddie House? Because I got to tell you, like, the dynamic you two guys have is really good. Like, how do you go, like, he gets 
obviously really upset with some of the bad losses, right? But like, how do you like try to balance both things where it's like, okay, you should be worked up over this game, like, especially like the Rockets lost, and then look at it from the bigger picture standpoint, but just like the whole dynamic with Eddie House, how fun has that been? It's been great. And it's been, uh, it's been evolving as well. I mean, you kind of, it, it sounds so corny and, you know, you hear like athletes use these terms all the time, but you have to build that chemistry. You have to come up with like, you know, jokes or whatever, just like things that happen, experiences that you can kind of relate on. Like the one night he's making fun of, I was just wearing boots, which, you know, they're like brown boots. I think it was like one of those days it was zero degrees out. And I'm like, all right, I'm wearing boots tonight. It's totally fine. And he would not let it go. I mean, he was calling them Elmer Fudd boots, Great Depression boots, like just was really going in on me about those. He's <laughs> like, do not ever wear those again. So that's, uh, he's he's a lot of fun to work with. And uh, it's, you know, it, it it's, we're looking forward to the postseason. Because I mean, the, the other thing too is like, these guys who play in the league that have experienced winning a championship, I mean, you know, for fans, we're looking at it saying, all right, this is the end of the regular season. I mean, for them too, though, they're, they're just, and these are the, these are the games where it's, you're just trying to power through and get to the playoffs and uh, really get back to being able to analyze games where everyone's on the floor and everyone's going full tilt. So I think we're, we're kind of all in that same boat together, but working with that, he's a lot of fun. Yeah, that makes sense, too. Like, he's looking at it from the perspective of, like, hey, is this team good enough to win a championship? Because at this point, with what they did last year and the standard for the organization, that is the goal. So here's the good thing, Tom. I have four reasons that I think we could get a Duck Boats parade. Because I was jumping off the ship a little bit. I got to tell you, I was a little bit worried about this team. But my first reason is Mass Jalen. And you guys had a graphic up during the game last night about just how good he's been with the mask on, which also comes post-All-Star break. So 27 points a game, 50% since the All-Star break. He actually cut the three threes down a bit. And the points in the paint, he's at 15.5, which is fifth. He's behind Giannis, Shea, Jokic, and AD. And he's in front of Joel Embiid, who is like the biggest center in the NBA, right? Pre-All-Star break, he was at 11.4, which is 19th. So he's up 4.1 points per game in terms of his points in the paint. Fast break points per game, nobody's averaging more post-All-Star break. He's at 6.1 Pre-All-Star break, he was at 4.0, which was eighth. And then he's getting to the basket a lot more. You look at the numbers in the restricted area. Post-All-Star break, 8.2 attempts. This is a guy that's a wing. That's third behind Giannis and a center. In in, uh, Sabonis, pre-All-Star break, that was at 5.8, which was 19th. So he's gone way up in those attempts. And the percentage is the exact same. It's 70.7% in the restricted area. So it's me with Jalen. It's getting out of the break. He's been way more aggressive when it comes to that getting to the rim, attacking the rim, because we know how good Jalen can be in terms of his mid-range game, which I think is so imperative for him when he gets to the postseason. And at times, like, the offense gets messy, right? It gets still. You got to hit a tough shot. Jalen can do that. But this aggression, like, I didn't, coming into the season, I'm like, is there another step for Jalen? And he took it. And then after the All-Star break, he took another step where it's just like he's using his athleticism right now to overwhelm defender so how do you feel about what we've seen from Jalen post all-star break because I heard Scal say on the broadcast it does seem like he's gone to another level yeah and I think that's huge too I think you're also seeing him take advantage in transition more often which he's to me you know maybe their best player in transition I mean I know Jason Tatum is, is tremendous in transition and Malcolm Brogdon as well with his body control even Derek White but Jalen sometimes finds a break that you don't even see that's there. That like that's what it feels like over the last month or so. You've seen him find fast breaks when it's like, what what are we doing here? We're going one on two, and Jalen will find a way to attack it and score the ball. Whereas I think maybe earlier in his career, 
that would have been a bad decision because it, it's, it's, it's almost like a turnover in that situation. But yeah, he's been much more aggressive finding lanes as well in the half court offense and just exploding to the rim. I don't know if the mask has anything to do with it, but it's kind of <laughs> one of those like, why mess with it? Just, just don't even mess with it. Just, just keep playing with it on. And you know, especially if that's what you want to do. And he even mentioned in post game one, it's uh, Abby in an interview, you know, my mom wants me to keep it on. And it's one of those, well, if she says she wants to keep it on, like just, Keep rocking it, man, especially if it's working and, and it has been. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I'd keep it on, too. It's kind of like the Rip Hamilton thing, right? Just keep it on. I mean, if it's working for you, keep it on. But yeah, you're right. I mean, he does just sort of like create holes that aren't there, almost like a running back. Like, And he's going by like these are NBA defenders like OG Ananobi is supposed to be this an elite defensive player. And he's just going right by him in that game on Wednesday night. All right. So that's my number one reason that I think the duck boat parade is back on is Jalen's gone to a different level. My number two reason for this, Tom is Malcolm Brogdon. So in his last six games, since that Utah loss, he's at 18.8 per game. The Celtics are plus 52 in those minutes. And only Derek white from a plus minus perspective has been better. Now, granted Jalen and Tatum have missed some time, but it does sort of match the eye test. So here's the thing to me. He's had a great season, like all around. He's been really good for this team, but one of the things that he's been doing lately is he's finishing at the rim a lot better. Last six games, he's at 71%, which is in the 76th percentile. Really good for a guard, obviously. Prior to that, he was at 55%. That was in the 20th percentile. It was one of the strange things of the season because you see this guy that can move defenders so easily, and for some reason, he just wasn't finishing at the rim. Sometimes I thought he was just going too fast, and he was kind of shooting him too high off the backboard. But those last six games as well, the number of shots at the rim are up as well. So what it's led to, more points in the paint. Last six games, he's at nine. Prior to that, he's at five points per game in the paint. We already know about the threes, 45% on non-corner threes, which is an elite number. And the pull-up threes, he's 60 of 134, which is 44.8%. The only guy that is shooting a better percentage that has taken 130 pull-up threes, Steph Curry, who is a pretty good shooter, right? Like the greatest of all time. And he's shooting 44% on catch and shoot threes. So him now being more efficient at the basket, I just look at Malcolm Brogdon and he is a changeup for this team. He's something they didn't have last year. He is a guy that is going to put pressure on the defense. He's constantly going to attack. And how many times did we see it last year where it's like, okay, if Jalen or Tatum doesn't have it going, how are they going to create offense, right? And if both of them don't have it going, well, then you're really fucked, right? Like, you don't know what's going on. So I do feel like just having this element that you didn't have a year ago is going to be so huge, especially in the postseason. And the reason I just highlight those rim numbers is now it seems like he's the guy that he was when he was finishing at an elite level previous to being here. To me, it's the thing that I've loved the most about Malcolm Brogdon this entire year is that, like, he's got this steadying, this calm presence where even if the game feels like it's slipping away from them a little bit, Malcolm Brogdon get on the floor and kind of just kind of change the pace of things. And and not to say that he's going to slow it down or speed it up, but kind of just take over control of the pace of the game. He's got to be one of one of the most in control players in the entire league. And it's just absolutely crazy sometimes when you see him. I mean, you talked about his ability to to kind of, you know, get by defenders or or kind of muscle them up. He, He is an underrated strong guy like in the way he gets to the basket and kind of is able to square his shoulders even when he's got a defender right on his hip uh, he's been amazing and then we're talking about all of this with him accepting the fact that he's okay coming off the bench and he's come off the bench every single game this season 
So that's obviously going to be the role going forward. And uh, I think that, I mean, Brad Stevens, obviously when he made this move, you know, that, that's what he had envisioned. And, and to like lay that out going into the year is one thing, but then to be able to execute it and have Malcolm Brogdon, even on nights when they've got like four starters out, he's still coming off the bench. To, yeah. to have that ability and, and, that, and that guy to accept that role uh, is massive. And I think that, you know, give Brad some credit there, but that, that falls on the player. That falls on Malcolm Brogdon being okay in that role, accepting it, and then excelling in that role. But again, like every time it seems like the game is getting out of control, when he gets on the floor, he kind of just reins it in a little bit. That's just the way it feels to me. He just he does a great job just taking things and getting them back settled down. Yeah, that's a good point. He's like the stabilizer. And the other thing, to your point about accepting that role, not a lot of guys would be willing to do that. I'm not comparing the players in terms of their previous resumes, but think about how long it's taken Russell Westbrook to get used to taking a lesser role. Malcolm Brogdon, he was never on the Russell Westbrook level. I'm not saying that, but the point being is he was a high usage guy. Like he was a high usage player for Indiana. And this season he said, yeah, I'm okay because I want to win a championship. And when he said that, when he first got traded here, I'm like, okay, like, let's see if that's actually true. Let's see if he gets upset in some of these games where he's not closing. He hasn't. I mean, he's been totally okay with the role, which is an amazing thing. And I do think if you're looking at like what the six man means, Malcolm Brogdon kind of embodies that because he elevates the team and he is like a legitimate six man. He's not actually playing starters minutes. He's playing minutes that ordinarily a high usage bench guy would, which is amazing to me. So, um, oh, another thing that I really, I really think that the duck boats could be back on for is Rob. So this is no secret. We know the impact this guy has. The last six games that he's played in, 120 minutes. In those minutes, the Celtics have a 95.7 defensive rating, okay? And Cleveland this year leads the league at 110.1. So, and there's been some good offenses in there. Now, he missed the Philly game, but he did play against Sacramento and Milwaukee. But this is something we've seen before. This year with Rob on the court, it's at 107.7, which is in the 97th percentile, according to Cleaning the Glass, and they're almost five points better per 100 possessions when he's actually on the court. Last year in the postseason, we saw the impact, right? They outscored their opponents by 65 points per game. This year, they're outscoring teams by 11 points per 100 possessions with Rob on the court. The offensive rebound is non-existent when Rob's off the court, right? I mean, there's only three teams that would have a lower rate than where they're at with Rob, and with Rob, at least they're above average. So that's a component you don't have without Robert Williams. And the other thing is the D on the defensive side, the opposition gets no offensive rebounds, 22%, which would be by far last in the NBA. The Celtics also, they're really good at the rim when Rob's on the court. They shoot 74.5%, which is in the 99th percentile. And it's a 7.5% increase. So it's way up from what they are without Rob on the court. And what's amazing to me is the corner three numbers. Now, you can say maybe some of that is shooting luck, but they're shooting 45.6% on corner threes when Rob's in the court. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Maybe a little bit, but I think it's, hey, you get this guy rolling to the basket. First of all, he can pass it. And secondarily, you always have that guy at the rim. So Rob's ability to change the game defensively, which is ability to block shots, which is obviously going to be huge in a second round series against Philadelphia with him coming over as a help defender. But on the offensive end, just having that guy that can be in the dunker spot at times where these drives that we're talking about, when you're getting into the lane, he's there for that sort of outlook, outlet pass. And then secondarily, if there's a shooter in the corner, you got to make a decision. If you're doing a pick and roll with, say, it's Tatum and Rob Williams, am I coming off this guy? Am I staying there? Because if you don't come off him, he's throwing it to Rob or Tatum's getting to the baskets. I just think Rob completely changes sort of the ceiling of where this team is. 
Completely. And I think everyone would agree with that. And it's, you know, you hit on it there. He is an underrated passer for everything you talk about. Rob Williams is an underrated passer. Uh, I, I think the energy level that he brings to games is tremendous. I think you especially saw that in Milwaukee. He was all over the place. And that's just kind of the role he, he's been playing lately. Now, he started, you know, that Wednesday night game against Toronto. I'm curious to see what they do in the postseason. Do they start the double bigs or do they go back to bringing Rob coming off the bench? Because, hmm. you know, if he is as impactful as he is, you'd probably want to start him. But if he can come off the bench sort of in, in the same vein that Brogdon does it and provide that energy, then you can't hate that either. I mean, you're just, you're, you're losing him on the jump ball would be the only thing there. And I, I guess you have to figure how much do you care about that? But it is intriguing to me how they're going to use him once you go into the postseason, as far as to, to bring him off the bench. And then, cause they have that luxury, like they have that depth where their starting five is going to be fine. If he's not on the floor and it has been fine, if he's not on the floor, and then bring him off or, or bring him on later on. And then just, I mean, just think about the bench compared to what it was a year ago. Like, again, we've talked about two guys right now who are providing depth because they have played so many games without Rob this year. It's just, this team is much stronger, but you're spot on with the fact that Rob Williams, I think, is, is one of the most vital parts of uh, the Celtics as far as uh, having that, that championship quality to them because of what he does on the defensive end because of the way he affects things offensively. And I just, I've really, really loved his energy lately. Yeah, you know, and it's a really interesting point on whether you should start him or keep him coming off the bench. Because if you think about it, you'd probably, if you're going to do that, you'd want to do it in the next couple of games here, right? Before the postseason begins to try to get that lineup sort of back together. Not that they're not used to playing with each other, but just to get him sort of in that vibe of, hey, your minute total is going to be closer to 30 on a nightly basis. So I'm going to be interested now that you say that to sort of monitor what Missoula does in these final couple of games here. If he puts Rob in any of these games in the starting lineup that, of course, if Al's not playing, that's a totally different conversation. But if he's in there with Al, right. I think that tells you that, OK, Rob is going back into the starting lineup for the postseason. Yeah, and I, I it's going to depend on who you're matching up with as well. You know, the double big situation. but. Uh, you know, it, it is that kind of luxury. And now you don't, that's the thing about the playoffs that no one really talks about during the regular season. You will never play back-to-backs in the playoffs. In fact, you're going to have more, you know, more often than not, it, it feels like you're going to have two nights off between games. So um, that's huge for both of their bigs. Yeah, and I remember last year too. Remember like they played Brooklyn on a Sunday and they didn't play again until the following Thursday. And we're breaking yeah. that game down for like three days. And hey, should we be worried that the, the Brooklyn Nets should have won that game? Like it just makes her for so many, so many like narratives after that game ends. So hopefully, hopefully it's quicker than the three games we got in between. But that is good for the Celtics from a health perspective. All right. So my last reason that I think the duck boat should be back on Tom is the offense makes more sense right now that everybody's available. And if you look at it since Rob returned, since that Utah loss, Rob's kind of a theme of all this, is they have the highest shooting percentage on drives, 57.4%. Prior to that, they were seventh at 51.9%. So that's a huge increase. They're six in points per game on drives, and they were 13th prior to that. The points in the paint is the big one to me, right? Is since the Utah loss, they're at 53 game, which is 13th. Prior to that, they were just 45.9, which was 25th. So they re weren't really getting into the paint that much. And that's despite now, lately, they haven't been shooting the three well. It's at 36.5% over the last six, which is 18th. And they're taking the most threes. But the other thing is, it's not hurting you because you're able to mix it up. It's not just like 
And I know you guys have talked about it on the postgame show a lot this year. It's not just like you're so reliant on the three. So even though you're taking the most threes, you're still getting good shots at the basket, which I don't believe the Celtics were getting for the majority of the season. Now, they still don't get to the free throw line, which kind of irritates you, but you think that Tatum will get there probably more once you get to the postseason. And then the other component in terms of the offense being great is the defense is back to being elite. Last six games, they're at a 103.1 defensive rating, four points better per 100 possessions than anybody else in the league. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is all happening with Rob Williams back, but it does feel like now that everybody is back because I remember initially when Rob came back from his first injury, like, wait, is he going to screw up the offense? Which I thought was crazy that people had that take, but it's like, oh, they're doing so well playing five out. But it does feel like now everything sort of makes sense from a health perspective. And I'm kind of like knocking on wood because this team right now (laughs) makes a lot of sense. And if Rob is there and Rob is healthy, I still believe this team has everything it takes to win a championship. And if they go into the postseason with a healthy Rob, I would favor them over anybody else. A hundred percent. And right now, if you look at it, I know that for whatever reason too, and I can't figure this out, but Milwaukee's odds to win the championship got a little bit better overnight. And I don't know if that's because they officially clinched the one seed and the Celtics are officially locked into the two, but I still like the Celtics in a seven game series against Milwaukee. Like I still like that, that matchup. And I will say this though, the, the bucks are better than I thought they were going to be this year. And we talk a lot about the Celtics depth. The bucks have great depth themselves. The one thing that Milwaukee does that, you know, would challenge things is they've got Brooke Lopez down low. They, they've got Giannis for, for rim protectors. And that's one area where, you know, Jason Tatum really hasn't been able to take advantage. You know, you kind of look at him against the Bucks, him against the Cavs. It's much more difficult to attack the rim because they've got those bigs. So, you know, when you bring up those numbers about getting to the basket, attacking that, you know, they haven't seen as many of those teams. Obviously, they saw Milwaukee recently, but that was such an ass kicking that I don't really know how much you can really take from that and say, OK, this you can apply to what you would expect to see in a series with Milwaukee. I, going into that game, even I thought. Let's not overblow this. And then, of course, they win by 40. And I'm like, well, I mean, then you want to overblow. <laughs> but it's like, no, let's remember, you know, temper things just a little bit. Um, but that's why I think matchups are so interesting. And I love all those points about Rob. I just want to bring up real quick because of the seeding. You know, I looked at it and thought Philadelphia is a good matchup for them. Philadelphia just feels like a good matchup. Whereas Cleveland, like I just was not interested in going six or seven games with a Cleveland team that's young and hungry, that again has those two bigs down low that are disruptive for, for you guys attacking the rim. And then with a guard like Donovan Mitchell, who just for whatever reason wants to bury the Celtics every single chance he gets. So I, I still look at it and, you know, some people, you know, Felger was arguing uh, it's an underachievement that they didn't get the one seed. But, you know, for a better better than a month now, I've been, I've been just wondering, are they better off seeing Philadelphia potentially? in the second round than they are, you know, seeing a team like Cleveland. Yeah, I was trying to make that case the other day, too. And the reason that I think is what you said. It's like they've had trouble with these smaller, quicker guards, especially a guy like Malcolm Brogdon in a Cleveland series. I think he'd play less minutes than he will against Philadelphia because Philadelphia doesn't really have that type of player with the exception of Maxi. But Maxi has been really, really bad against the Celtics and James Harden at this point in his career, like we saw it the other night. Brogdon's fine on him because he's not going to go by you. And if he tries to overpower Malcolm Brogdon, it's just not going to work. Brogdon's too big for that. So that that to me, it does make a lot of sense. Now, Embiid has been going off in these games against the Celtics. But even the other night, the guy has 52 points. Okay, 
and the Celtics are without their, what, second best player in Jalen Brown, and they still only win by two points. I'm with you. I think that's a really bad matchup for Philadelphia. And the other thing is they don't have these defenders on the wing, right? Like they traded for McDaniels and this guy played 15 minutes. Like doc doesn't trust the guy. And he was brought in there. You would think to cover the wings of the Celtics and he doesn't even play him. So I just don't think they have enough defenders on the wing to deal with the Celtics. I'm sure there'll be a game where Embiid dominates, but overall I feel very comfortable about that matchup against Philadelphia. All right, so have I convinced you that the Celtics are going to win the championship now because I'm fully back on? Are you still hesitant here? I, I, no, I've been there. I've been there, you know, and I think it's just you, you kind of you watch this team, especially post-All-Star break, and you wonder, you know, is this just not their year? Are things not exactly clicking right now? Um, but then I think you, you watch the Milwaukee game, and again, not to overblow, but you think, okay, they can they can rise to the occasion. They can beat anybody in the league when they're playing at their best. Like that, that was my biggest question going into that game. If Milwaukee's playing at its best and Boston's playing at its best, which team is better? I'm back to believing the Celtics are the better team when both are playing at their best. Yeah, I'm in on that, and I feel very confident right now. The most confident I've been really since the 21-5 and five stretch that the Celtics are heading into the postseason at the right spot. So are you concerned about Missoula in the postseason at all? Because I guess that would be the question, right? I guess you could go back to last year and say, hey, Ime had never coached in the postseason either before, but I do feel like there's been a lot more stuff that's happened with Missoula this year in terms of like even the game at Wednesday, like he's getting into it with Chris Boucher. It feels like he gets into it a lot with the media when people ask him about threes. He even brought it up in the game against Philadelphia, like talking about the threes and all that. So I do feel like he's more of a, and look, Ime was an intense guy and he got into it with his players, but I do feel like Missoula is kind of more of a loose cannon. And the one thing I do get concerned about sometimes with Missoula is, hey, is he going to be pliable with the closing lineups? Because obviously that's been a topic of conversation as well. Like going back to the Philly game, like why is Brogdon not on the court here? Like Brogdon's been way better than yeah. smart. They don't have anybody to deal with Brogdon. Why hasn't he been on the court more? So I guess... I am a little bit concerned about Missoula just because it's his first year out there. So I will see about that. But he, does he concern you at all? Uh, no, but I am curious how, because once you get into the playoffs, now you're talking about game to game adjustments. And if like, if we look at last year's postseason, you know, that was Ime's first one as well. But I thought he easily outcoached Steve Nash in, in the Brooklyn staff. I thought they outcoached Milwaukee in the second series. Then I think when he got to Miami, I think the Celtics probably got out coached there. The Celtics had more talent than Miami, but that game or that series went to seven games because of Eric Spolstra and his staff. And then I thought when you got to the NBA finals, the Celtics looked like the better team early in that series. But then you saw Steve Kerr and his staff again, make adjustments and, you know, maybe it's the championship pedigree and, and the playmakers and everything else. And they had been there before, but I think coaching played a big role in that, that NBA finals against Steve Kerr and the Warriors. So that to me is interesting going into it. And it's not just Joe Missoula. It's the fact that, you know, you lost Will Hardy off your staff from last year. Damon Stoudemire took the job at Georgia Tech, you know, a month ago. So, you know, there there have been guys that uh, have, have taken other jobs. And some of that experience that even was young experience a year ago isn't around right now. So once you get into these series where it's game to game adjustments to see, because just do you remember how they defended Kevin Durant in that first series against Brooklyn? Oh it was like mind blowing. It was yeah. unbelievable the way the Celtic staff knew how to attack Kevin Durant defensively. And 
now you you look at it and say, okay, are they going to be able to make adjustments game to game the same way we saw them do it in the first couple of rounds last year, the same way we saw opposing coaches make adjustments in the in the final two rounds last year? That's that's where I'm, I'm interested to see how things go. Yeah, that was mean what they did to to Durant, who is one of the best scorers in the history of the NBA. It's like they they had him like Tatum was obviously great on him, but they also had to your point like the scheme was really good where it's like okay if he gets to the second dribble go get him like go double him right like and if it's just the one dribble he's pulling up so don't come off your guy because then he can find somebody else but man they were just on that from the beginning and it felt like clearly I think they were motivated too by everyone saying hey why why did you win like now you got to play Brooklyn I think they were motivated by that as well but you said something in there about Eric Spolstra that has me worried is that team and Spolstra scares the shit out of me Butler scares the shit out of me Bam scares the shit out of me I just hope that they don't get Miami in the first round, like coming out of that play-in situation. And I know Miami's numbers are horrible, right? They, they cannot shoot threes. They can't hit anything on the perimeter. But I don't know. Maybe it's just that we've been through this so many times. Bam in the bubble. Last year, Jimmy Butler's a shot away from beating the Celtics. Yeah. And Eric Spolster's going to junk it up, right? He's going to go to all these crazy things. He'll go to the zone, et cetera. They just scare me. I want no part of that team. And I will not be <laughs> thinking that this series is over against Miami until literally the series is over. Like, I, I'll never be confident against them. But, Brian, here's the thing. And, and for, Chris Forsberg made me look at, the, at it this way as well. He's like, do you think the Celtics, you think they're the, the championship favorites? Yes. Okay. Well, then you shouldn't be worried about them playing any team. Right. But here's the thing. Like, playing Miami could mean going six games Maybe even seven games. You know, they're going to do what you just laid out there to try to muck things up. And they're going to just, they're going to be a greater challenge than if you somehow got the Atlanta Hawks in that first round matchup. I mean, yeah. And I understand you go back to 2008 and it was the Atlanta Hawks and who somehow took, you know, uh, the, the big three to, to seven games in, in that opening round series. I just, I don't see this Atlanta team giving them any problems. But you, I'm not, I'm not really afraid of Miami. You just know that it's going to be more of a challenge than you're probably wanting in the first round, despite how poorly they've looked at, you know, for, for much of this year. It's more Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolster. Those are the first two names. It's more about yeah. those two guys than anything else. Yeah, and it's like, okay, so who would you rather have? Go against Jimmy Butler as the best player or Trey Young? Like, Trey Young is a DH. That guy is a losing player, and the Celtics would abuse him. Like, hey, come up in the action, Trey. Get switched on to Tatum. Get switched on to Jalen Brown. Like, that guy's day would be over. His series would be over. They would kill the Hawks. I hope the Hawks somehow get out of that and they get the seven seed. That'd be awesome for me. D I love that. I've never heard the DH thing real quick. I love that. Yeah, he's a DH. He only plays on one Doesn't side of the court. Yeah. yeah, I mean... It and that's why, like, I, I would never want to be that guy's teammate. Like, how can you, how can you, like, put up, you have to do all this stuff defensively for this guy, right? Like, make up for him defensively. And then, like, when Isaiah Thomas was here, like, he worked at it. He wasn't a good defender, yeah. but he did everything he possibly could. And Trey Young's not, he's going to give you such little effort. But, Giles, I did want to get to some Patriots stuff with you. So, the Lamar situation, we heard, okay, Robert Kraft, Meek Mills texting him. And I look at just like the impact this guy's have. The Ravens fourth in expected points added per play since Lamar has been in the NFL. The Patriots during that stretch were 17th. Obviously, I'm not very high on this Patriots roster right now. I do think that this is sort of the thing that could completely change that in terms of, hey, you're building around a star level quarterback. So are you in on Lamar? Like, do you want the Patriots to go after Lamar? Uh, especially given what's been going on here over the last 
few days with the reports that <laughs> Bill Belichick shops Mac Jones. I mean, going into the season with that situation doesn't really sound too appetizing. I think Lamar Jackson probably makes them two to three wins better. Like I don't think with you. they're all of us. I don't think they're all of a sudden a Super Bowl contender. But for instance, like their win total was set at seven and a half. I think if they get Lamar Jackson, it's probably nine and a half. Maybe, t- maybe it gets bet up to 10. You know, you're going to see people confident enough to think that. So, you know, then you're, you're 10 and seven with Lamar Jackson, which goes back to your point that this roster, I still think has too many holes. Like it's people look at the wide receiver room. I don't think that Juju Smith Schuster was an upgrade over Jacoby Myers. I, I don't, I don't get that at all. Jacoby Myers is a young ascending receiver. Juju Smith Schuster was a pro bowler. Like it's, you got guys, it feels like who are kind of going in different directions and maybe, Maybe uh, he's what they're looking for, a guy who can get the yards after catch. But that's, I, yeah, I'd definitely be intrigued by Lamar Jackson. At the very least, I mean, it's going to give you some, some sort of hope, some sort of reason to think that, you know what, Patriots are back in it, man. They could, yeah. they could maybe win this division. But I still wouldn't, they still wouldn't be the favorites to win the division, you know? But they'd be, no. back, they'd be back into contention. And because otherwise... What are you doing this year? You're walking into the year <laughs> right now with Mac Jones and coming off rumors that you maybe tried to trade him and everyone complaining about his demonstrative behavior a year ago. And yeah, I get, you know, and I love the fact that they went out and finally got Bill O'Brien a year too late, but at least they, they you know, they recognized the mistake and said, okay, we definitely have to go get him. It doesn't matter what our friendships are with Nick Saban. They get Bill O'Brien, but is that all of a sudden going to elevate, you know, Mac Jones to above what he was as a rookie? I I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just very curious what you're going to see at the end of the season. Like, are you all of a sudden going to, are you going to be able to say Mac Jones is definitely the quarterback in 2024? Ugh, I, I don't feel great about that. And then you're in the same predicament. You're basically in going into uh, to this year. Yeah, well, you're completely right on the Bill O'Brien thing, because the reason we're all excited is it's not Matt Patricia, right? Like nobody is confusing Bill O'Brien and saying like, He's one of the great offensive minds in the NFL. And this is not supposed to be an indictment on Bill O'Brien. I think he's going to do a good job for the Patriots. But it's like, he's not Kyle Shanahan. He's not Sean McVay. He's not Andy Reid. He's not Brian Dayball. It's not like you got this elite offensive mind. What you got was a professional offensive coordinator, which you lacked last season. And to your point on Juju, I think he's a slight upgrade over Jacoby just because of the stuff they can do after the catch. But the problem is... He's not a big enough upgrade, right? What you needed was a big, massive upgrade, which is a number one receiver, which, of course, the Patriots don't have. So I'm with you in terms of I'm all in on Lamar. So, hey, before I let you go, let's assume that the Patriots don't trade for Lamar, which I don't want to live in that world. Like, I I still want to dream that the Patriots can get Lamar Jackson. But let's say they don't get Lamar Jackson. Okay, most likely outcome. Mac is traded before his rookie contract expires. Mac finishes out his rookie contract and then is not extended. He goes somewhere else. Mac gets a long-term extension with the Patriots. Which one of those do you think is the most likely scenario? God, the way things are playing out now. I, I, I If you ask me, going into last year, it was definitely Mac gets a long-term contract with the Patriots. And now you're kind of stuck. I don't think... I don't think they'll be able to play it out and then his rookie contract will just be able to expire. Like it just doesn't feel like that, especially with with all the rumors and everything else this offseason. There's no way this thing's just gonna kind of fizzle to an end. It's going to boil to probably a, a <laughs> trade of of Mac Jones. That just feels the way it's trending right now. And you know, at at some point, 
it's not just that Bill Belichick is shopping him reportedly. It also becomes what if Mac Jones is like, I, I just, I can't be here anymore. Like this is, this just isn't working now. And I'm not saying that Mac Jones has the clout to even do that because I don't think he's proven that he is that type of quarterback. He hasn't proven that he's a, a you know, top 15 quarterback in this league. So but he, you know, maybe he still wants to get out. And I, I think that that's probably the most likely scenario, unfortunately. I agree. And I think there is some of that with Mac, where if you were him, right, like we can look at him and say, hey, he took a massive step back. But he probably looks at everything that has transpired over the past, I'd say, 12 months or so in terms of the Monday night debacle where they yank him after three series and they hide behind the injury. Bill won't commit to him, like even the following week saying, Hey, those are hypothetical questions. Even going back to the owners meeting, Bill wouldn't commit to Mac over Bailey Zappi. Just all those different things. And like you mentioned, in terms of some of the issues that he's had with the organization to the coaching staff, like he had to deal with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge as his offensive coordinators, so to speak, for a year. And then you look at the fact that, well, he doesn't have elite level weaponry. So he probably thinks that he doesn't have a chance to succeed here. So I agree with you 100%. I think there is a chance that Mac probably just wants to get out of town and go to a different team and see if he can succeed there. Yeah, and could you blame him? No. On some level, it's like, all right, uh, you know, got to be a 15th overall pick, got to go to a great organization, but now what? You know, now I'm just getting buried and everyone's, you know, talking about, you know, my behavior on the field, which, by the way, you know, probably when over the top and and then of course the the reports that mac jones is asking for help outside of the organization last year which you know really pissed off bill which by the way i just i i think that that thing is is a little overblown like if you don't if you don't bring in joe judge and matt patricia to run your offense then your second year quarterback doesn't need to go ask for help elsewhere but at what point do you say this is my career too i understand like this is your organization this is your football team but I'm over here wondering, like, is, is anyone noticing this thing burning down? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I guess that, like, there's a tiny bit of mutiny in there. But at the same time, what are you supposed to just sit on your hands and be like, yeah, everything's great over here in New England where we can't run anything offensively. We're taking penalties, timeouts, everything. So it's, it's going to be a fascinating couple of months and then a really fascinating season. Yeah, I can't wait. I cannot wait to see what happens. But. Yeah, I mean, this Mac situation is just bizarre. I, I guess that most of it is just Bill was embarrassed, like from an ego perspective. Like, when would you have a player calling up his college coaching staff or whoever it was to get advice on how to run the offense? That was probably just like a major hit to Bill's ego more so than anything else. And you you don't want to hurt B- Bill's ego. We know that. I mean, that that's something that you certainly can't do. I mean, we heard him. He had to clarify his comments. God forbid. About, yeah. Yeah. What makes you feel com- or what makes the fans feel confident the last 25 years? That's what he said. <laughs> and he had to clarify those comments. Yeah. Like, so I think it's more an ego it's, thing than anything else. It, it totally is. But at the same time, like, I, I think your ego should have taken a hit when you went ahead and, and tried to run your offense through two guys that never really done it before, or at least that yeah. failed in some capacity at it and just decided this is the best way to, to go into this, the second year of Mac Jones, which was supposed to be the year where you find out, is he actually good? Can he take a step forward? Because you want to know if you have the franchise quarterback or not. Yeah. I'm just happy that Joe judge is going to be nowhere near the quarterback anymore. Ship that guy to the moon. I mean, no part of that. <laughs> Do I want that guy around well, here anymore? He's in the building. 
Yeah, he's in the building. I don't know what the hell he's doing. I hope it's like an office space situation where he's just like, okay, we're not even paying this. Yeah, we're, we're not paying this guy anymore. All right, that is Tom Giles from NBC Sports Boston. You see him on Early Edition. You see him, of course, on the Celtics pre and post game show as well. Giles, thank you so much for the time, man. Really enjoyed it. And hey, have a great run covering this team in the postseason. Yeah, uh, definitely look forward to it. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Uh, had a ton of fun. So do it again sometime. But yeah, I, I and by the way, the four reasons for the championship parade, I, we're, we're on board. We're on board. And, and there's plenty more reasons as well. So it's going to be interesting. You have the Celtics and the Bruins. It's going to be a fun spring. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Welcome back into Off the Pike, recording on Thursday after the Red Sox beat the Tigers. They get back on track. Joining us now from the ITM podcast, it is Steve Peralt. Peralt, what's going on, man? How are you? I am good. I am glad the Red Sox are not two and five. So they avoided that, which is good. Coming off a sweep to the Pittsburgh Pirates, those pesky Pirates. That's what we've always called them. So yeah, yeah, three and four. I'll take that, uh, preferably seeing the teams they've played in these first three series. You would have wanted a better record than that, but I'll take it. Where where are you at with this team right now? Yeah, I'm feeling all right. I mean, I, I do think now that you mentioned the Pirates thing, I think it's maybe an Eck curse. Remember he called them out last year for, t- <laughs> I forget what the exact <laughs> quote was, but it was like a smorgasbord of nothingness or something along <laughs> yeah, those lines. Nothingness, I think. I had totally <laughs> forgotten about that. We had a, uh, a voicemail segment on the podcast and someone was like, you know what I think happened, guys? I think the Pirates were in the clubhouse before the game, rallying around, replaying that clip by Eckersley, and that that got them all that got them all pumped. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure Brian Reynolds and O'Neill Cruz are like, we got to get payback for Eckersley. But yeah, I mean, it's you just can't, you know, we'd mentioned this in the show, but you can't at any point of the season get swept by the Pirates, right? I know yeah. a lot of folks are going to be like, oh, it's early in the year, and you know, you got to figure things out. And I get it, I hear you. But at no point in the season is it acceptable to get swept by the Pittsburgh Pirates, especially at Fenway. Just can't happen. Yeah, and especially, too, when you score five runs in the first inning of game one of the series, and then Cutter Crawford comes right back out, and he gives it all back up. And that was the theme early on as the starting pitching. But those final two games against Pittsburgh, this team just didn't hit. And that had been something they had been doing often to begin the year. So this game today, they did get back, and they started to hit against the Tigers. But the reason I wanted to have you on, Peralt, was because it was sale day, right? So After the first game, which I was at Fenway for that one, and it was ugly. It was very difficult to watch. He got crushed, although it turned out to be a fun game because Duvall hits the walk-off. You have McKenna, the misplay, and all that. But I feel like this is going to be a major storyline either way. Like, either Chris Sale is going to be vintage Chris Sale, or Chris Sale is going to get beat up again, and it's going to be like, okay, are we starting to get worried about Chris Sale? 
And we kind of got a middle ground, didn't we? Because if you think about how this thing started, he threw nine consecutive balls. The second batter of the game, I mean, there was four pitches that were just not competitive to uh, Javi Baez, right? So he walks two guys to begin that inning. And I'm thinking to myself, this is ugly. Then he comes back and he strikes out three guys. And I'm thinking to myself, here's Chris Sale. Oh, he's back. Chris Sale is back to me and Chris Sale again. And then he gives up a home run to Rodgers in the next inning. And it just kind of got ugly after that, where he was missing his spots. And we've seen that be the theme early on this season for him. But he was able to at least finish strong and Cora got him out of the game. And I truly believe that the reason Cora got him out where he's only at, what, 74 pitches or so was to have him feel good coming out of the start. Because like, all right, let's end on a high note. We feel like the bullpen is one of the real strengths of this team. But all in all, I thought there were some good signs. I thought there were some signs that we saw left over from the first game. And the conclusion I drew, Pearl, was he's still a work in progress right now. He is. Yeah, he's a work in progress. I know you allude to Corey getting him out feeling good. Is Corey being a little too protective of Chris Sale, where we don't have him pitch on opening day because it's his birthday? You know, we want to make sure he has a happy birthday and doesn't want to have the, you know, added pressure of opening day, which some could say if it's clear that you're doing that to avoid the pressure, it's adding pressure by being like, too selective with when you're throwing what should be your ace in this rotation. But no, overall, there's no real way to exactly expect what's going to happen in the next three, four, five starts for him, right? Hoping he, you know, knock on wood that he makes those starts and he's healthy. At least they've had that the first two uh, ways uh, through the, uh, you know, his, his, his start so far, at least he hasn't gotten hurt. And I, I don't even say that as a joke. Like that does matter. No, that it's he's a real at least- thing. That's a real thing that he's at least gone, you know, two starts. This guy, and he's been okay. bro, this guy did fall off a bike before and get injured, right? So I mean, this yeah, is a real allegedly, thing. allegedly, yes. I'm still, <laughs> I still don't know about that one, but you know, I mean, you look at you look at some of the numbers. I had to bring some stats to the table. It's a Brian Bear podcast. I got to bring some stats to the table. Oh, uh, hit me, love it. Barrel percentage, thirty percent right now. That is oh boy. absolutely <laughs> absurd. That is about as high as it could possibly be. But he's got a fourteen six three K per nine. So 14 Ks per nine innings. So it's like, granted, some of the strikeouts, I know you say he has nine straight balls to start the outing. Then he's got the three strikeouts in the first inning. The Tigers hitters were helping him. Some of these pitchers were all over the place and and they were swinging at him inside, in the dirt, uh, away. And they're they're hacking at it. Now, the slider is the pitch that you're going to make guys look ugly on. And he's done that. So at least that's consistently been the case so far this season. But yeah, he's got a whip of two, you know, even though he's got a career whip of one. So it's there's a lot of things you can look at right now and be concerned about with Chris Sale. At least he's been healthy through two starts. He's given them a chance to win in one of them, and they won the first one somehow. I still that's really crazy that he got a no decision in that first game. He gives up three homers, seven earned through three innings, and they get the uh, the no decision for Sale. So it's a big ball of who knows right now with Chris Sale, right? Yeah, so I guess if you want to look at the positive side of this, well, actually, let me get to one negative thing before I get to the positive side of it, is like when you think about vintage Chris Sale, it's get, he's getting all these swings and misses out of the zone, right? So if you look at him, the first start, he only got 21% of the swings that were out of the zone, right? So guys only swung at 21% of the pitches out of the strike zone, okay? Just one starter was south of 25% in 2022. That's it. So this is a guy that gets a ton of chases he didn't in the first start, And today, he was pretty low again. We're talking about 26%, which if you take that number from last year, it would have been 111th out of 124 starters that went at least 150 innings last year. So that's vintage sale is when he's getting those swings and misses out of the strike zone. 
The problem is it all comes back to command because he hasn't been tempting enough when his pitches are going out of the zone. Now, when he's in the zone, he's had some bad misses, of course, in the first game against Baltimore. But even the one to Rodgers, I thought that was an odd decision. The pitch selection there, too, where it was the two-seamer kind of just went right into the swing path. So maybe that was just a miss on his part. Like, obviously, he doesn't want to put it there. But the other thing is, like, in the zone, he still is getting swings and misses. So getting back to my whole theme, how I started this was in terms of the positive note would be the fact that, okay, the stuff still plays. Now, I don't think the stuff looked as good as it did in the opener. The velocity was down a little bit. But I think if you're going to take a positive note out of this one is he's still making hitters look dumb, look stupid, look like minor league players, so to speak. But I just wonder, is it a mechanical thing that they have to go back and tweak? Because here's the thing about Sale, like coming back from an injury, and maybe this is different from like other pitchers across the sport, is he's so herky-jerky. He's cross-firing, right? His limbs are all over the place, Peralt. So maybe part of it is it's just we're going to have to be patient. I know we don't really have patience as a fan base because we really haven't seen this guy pitch well in, since, what, 2018? He was decent in 2021, despite the fact that he only had two pitches. But I think that's just the thing is because there's so many moving parts to his delivery, I think it's going to take a little bit of time till he gets that command back. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I definitely agree with the herky-jerkiness of it. And that leads to us watching these games kind of wincing just throughout the start. There's times where it's like, oh, man, he could have gotten hurt just throwing that ball. Like, there's just <laughs> there is there is a lot of movement. There's stuff going on where you're always just worried about his health. And I haven't had time to worry about the health this year, partially because of the pitch clock, but also because he's just there's constantly stuff going on. There's not a lot of comfort in watching these starts. He's walked five guys uh, in two starts, which is not Chris Sale like the ball's all over the place. A strike percentage of 60 percent. That would be the lowest of his career. So he's just got to get back to throwing strikes, attacking the strike zone. The fastball is getting hit for homers, though, I think. Almost all the home runs he's given up. Well, he's given up four, right? So I think three out of the four have been on the fastball. That's what you said on the broadcast. So, I mean, typically no one's going to hit that slider out unless he, you know, he had one, I think, to Mount Castle that just kind of sat there and yeah, anyone it was a probably would have. Bad spot. Yeah. yeah. That was a bad spot. And anyone probably would have hit that out, even though Mount Castle crushes the Red Sox. So I don't, it, you can't really base too much of your opinion on these two starts in terms of how things are going to go moving forward. But he can't stay at this strike percentage, right? He's you got to get that up. I mean, you got to get closer to 70 and you know, he's, he's putting guys on for free, especially to start the game it was funny on the broadcast because OB and I agree with him was like, have you ever seen Chris sales start a game by walking two guys on eight pitches? Like that was bizarre. <laughs> he's rarely putting guys on for free, but eight straight balls. And they weren't even really that close. It was getting to the point this, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, in this series and in the last one, where Reese McGuire at at the plate when when he was hitting has had a couple cases so far of complaining with umpires on balls that are absolutely strikes, like pitchers that are absolutely in the strike zone that he gets called out for strike three, and he's looking back like, what are we doing here? I want to yell at don't don't do that. It's for Reese McGuire's spot in the lineup. It's so not worth not getting those pitches on the other end for whoever's throwing for the Red Sox. I don't want him doing that because Sale had a couple of close ones and he wasn't getting them. Now, I don't want to say that's because Reese McGuire was complaining, but it, it doesn't help your case with the umpire if you're going to make a whole thing when you're when you're at the plate. So I don't know. I don't know, Barry. It's we're very it's a very mixed reaction, right? You can't really come out of these starts putting your foot down and feeling a specific way about it. But I'm also not going to act like, oh, my God, he's washed. So many people in the mentions. He's washed. He's done. Ah, let him go after next year. No, I'm not going to go that far. we got to give him some time. 
Yeah, and that is a tremendous pickup on the Reese McGuire thing. I haven't noticed this, but now I'm going to be glued into this because you can't be doing that when you're hitting yeah. down in the order, okay? You guys just got to be worried straight about threes. He's complained yes. and they've been in the zone like pretty well in the zone, not even yeah. that close. I'm like, pick it on. up, Reese. Okay, enough yeah. of that. We've had enough of you doing that, so you got to you got to stop with that. So I, I hope we can get back on track. I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but over. Whelming my point, my overwhelming point in sale is I'm still not there, there, there one way or the other. I, I don't know yeah. how I feel about him. And I think maybe we'll know more after the third start, but I thought that after the second start. So but where, where's your concern level at, though, that he kind of has to be the guy right yeah. in the rotation? Like he kind of has to be the guy. I mean, you can convince me that it could be Bayo. And I know you and I talked about this before the season started. Like, realistically, who's going to be the face of the rotation by the end of the season? The odds to me are pretty slim that it's sale health and stuff included there. And this point of his career and all that relatively low that it's Kluber, you know, like it, it's and then Whitlock, who knows Bayo, who knows Paxton. I mean, you'd get great odds if you got him being the, the lowest DRA of the rotation. So I, I don't they don't have a guy in the rotation and that's going to keep biting him, even though the offense, let's be real. It's been better than we've thought. Right. To this oh, point. yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. But to your point about the pitching staff. I'm really starting to, maybe it's because we haven't seen a pitch at the big league level this year yet. I'm really starting to buy into the Whitlock thing just because yeah. if you look at him last year or over the past two seasons, the walk rate's 5.3%, which is 23rd out of 156 pitchers that threw at least 150 innings. So he attacks the zone. First pitch strike rate, 65.2%, which was 33rd. So he's always attacking hitters. We know the two seamer is nasty. The changeup is nasty. Opponents hit 113 two years ago, or 113 last year, 185 two years ago. The slider was devastating to righties in 2021, 171. It was not good last year. It jumped to 326. There was some bad luck there. But I tend to believe, like, we had these debates, and I think they were debates worth having, especially last season, is because the bullpen was bad. Like, this whole thing about should he be in the rotation? Should he be a starter? And the way that I look at it now, the more and more I hear him talking about coming back from the injury— I attribute a lot of the struggles to the injury more so than being a starter rather than being in the bullpen, et cetera, because you look at some of the numbers. So in 2022, he was at 40.8% in terms of his ground ball rate, or excuse me, 49.7% in 2022. The year before, he's at 40.8%. So you're talking about a difference of 8.9 percentage points, right? Like almost nine percentage points. That's a big thing. And then yeah. the hard hit rate, you go to 2021, it's 37.1%. That jumped up to 39%. So not awful, but not Garrett Whitlock. So he had, in the past, very soft contact, way less ground balls last year compared to two years ago. And I believe in the stuff, like the the fastball plays because the extension, it looks like it's 97-98 rather than 95-96 just because he's on top of you. We know the changeup is a top-tier pitch. And it's just about getting that slider back. And I think part of the reason that he struggled giving up loud contact was he couldn't fully extend, right? Like he's not coming mm. all the way down. So some of those pitches are up in the zone when they're supposed to be down. So I'm really starting to buy into the fact that it was more about the hip than it was everything about moving him back and forth. And I think he's actually going to have a really good year and we should see him at some point next week. Yeah, he should pitch Tuesday at the trot. So, you know, you're not going to be rattled by any, uh, you know, opposing fan base that's on top of you. So at least they'll have that going for him. But yeah, the hip thing, it's funny. Wasn't it so apparent too? he was limping to and from the mound every time he was pitching? Weird like, gait. 
why are we not putting this guy on the IL? What's happening here? As the Red Sox season was collapsing around them, it's like whatever, put him on the IL. So I'm I'm down to agree with you there, and and assume that that had a big impact on why he wasn't going deep into games and why there was harder contact than you would have liked. But still got to see it, right? Still got to see it from Whitlock over a, a lengthy stretch of starts where he can get into the fifth, sixth inning and actually still be effective. Because if him and Houck are similar types of pitchers in terms of OPS going up around a thousand the third time through, the Sox are kind of screwed a little bit because you don't have the luxury of using them in the bullpen. And th- everything just uh, every part of this pitching staff affects the other part and seemingly more now than in other other years. They don't have a lot of wiggle room. That's apparent yeah. by Caleb Ort getting this many outings. Ryan Brazier being in like five games so far. Your guy. It, I love Brazier. I'm a Rye guy. That's what we call ourselves. Um, but it's tough because Cora is in a, a tricky spot, right? He's in a tricky spot where it's like, I do I want to be pitching Brazier this much? No, I don't want Ord in there this much, but you kind of have to. You don't have Bayo and Whitlock in the rotation right now. You're getting them back soon, which is good. Tanner Houck, you know, gives up two bombs the third way through the, the lineup, which is nothing new. And yeah. so you're now kind of depleted. You got no Joely Rodriguez. Not like he was going to make some huge impact on the pen, but he's a lefty. He's a guy that could help you and doesn't walk a lot of uh, players, which the Red Sox, I think, are second in the majors right now in walks. So it all affects each other. And it's been apparent with how these games have gone so far. Now, having said that, three and four, all things considered, is not that bad. I don't want to be like the silver lining guy with a losing record for the Red Sox, but all things factored in considering the bats went that cold, like you mentioned, five runs in that first inning, they score what three runs the rest of the series, I believe after the first inning of the pirate series. So they got to, they got to get more consistent, you know, at the plate, it's still very early, but pitching wise, man, that's, that was my concern going in the year. And it's, it's going to stay that way moving forward. Yeah. And it's a fair point too on the rotation because they really do need Whitlock and Bayo to be really good for them. And as it pertains to Bayo, I'm just super excited for this guy because I mean, (laughs) Like I look at his baseball savant page and you see the top contact, the ground ball rate. It's like I need a cigarette after like reading that page. Like this is, <laughs> this guy is like the potential. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the only concern about him is just the command. That's it. The stuff is nasty. Like the fastball velocity is up in the 89th percentile. We know that he gets a ton of contact that's topped. Last year, this guy was so unlucky with the infield hits and all that. So I'm excited for him. I'm just going to hold my breath until I see him out there because I don't want to get too excited because he does profile just in terms of the stuff, and I'm not saying that he's got the control yet over the command. He does profile as like a front end of the rotation guy if he can harness that command. And I, I do like sometimes it's kind of like Tanner Houck, right, where Tanner Houck's stuff is so nasty, sometimes he just can't harness it. And I hope Bayo doesn't have that same issue throughout his career. That's actually kind of what Sale reminds me of right now. He's like Tanner Houck. Like Tanner Houck, he's got nasty stuff, but he doesn't know where the fucking ball's going half the time, right? Oh, so, I know. And they always yeah. called Tanner, they called him out of the gate, at least Tanner Houck was like the righty sale. Yeah. We love doing that, comparing him to like big time Red Sox pitchers. It's like, oh, well, Bayo's Pedro. He's oh, yeah. just not. Can we stop with that? He's not. But no, I, I agree with you with Bayo. They, it's almost less of a hope thing and more of a need thing at this point, right? Where it's like, you need him to be really good if you yeah. want any chance to compete in the ALEs. So, Ideally, he gets back. He's had some good rehab starts. I think he's got one more left maybe before he returns to rotation, but at least that pushes guys like Cutter back. Maybe Cutter goes to Worcester. I don't know what's going to happen there, but how could go back to the pen and you can at least have more of a rotation that you planned on having before the season started. I'm excited for them to get there because then we can have the most realistic breakdown of the team is when the rotation is is fully healthy. I, I just pray that it's not like last year where you got all yeah. these, you know, Woo Sox guys 
filling in for it got to the point where his majority of rotation was the Woo Sox. It just came up and <laughs> it and really became, was. They were the Boston Woo Sox. And it was just like, we can't do this. Can't afford to do it. Yeah. So at, don't want to have another summer of that. At one point, it was Bayo, who they clearly didn't want to have up at that point. They just had to bring him up because they didn't have any anybody left. It was Bayo, Winkowski, Crawford. All those guys were in the rotation, Gosh. which is just and Whitlock at the time was in the rotation. Everybody in that rotation last year was pretty much injured. But you mentioned Ort and you mentioned Hoke. And the reason I say that is you don't feel comfortable with Ort. You don't feel comfortable with Brazier naturally. And when Hulk goes back in that bullpen, that's just another weapon Corey can have, because that is one thing that's jumped out to me. I saved the Ryan Brazier part of it, but man, like I feel comfortable going to some of these guys now. Like this is a feeling I haven't had in a long time. I, I just looked through Martin. So Thursday, one inning, no runs, 15 pitches, 11 strikes. The first outing, one inning, 11 or one inning, 15 pitches, no runs. Next one, one inning, eight pitches, no runs, one inning, 11 pitches, no runs. So he's 49 pitches, Four innings, no runs. I love that. This guy's a strike thrower. That's the reason they got him. He was the best in baseball last year throwing strikes. Canley Jansen gets his first save today. Got some nasty stuff. And one of my concerns was, hey, how's he going to deal with the pitch clock? He's actually been fine. He's actually been working a lot quicker than most of these pitchers. And then Schreiber had a rough one on Wednesday, but he came back and got through the outing on Thursday. So all three of those guys, I can't remember a time where I legitimately trust Schreiber. I trust Jansen and I trust Martin, all three of those guys. Can you remember like the last, even 18, I guess Matt Barnes was really good that year, but I didn't have the same you trust. You still have, yeah, I didn't have the same right. trust. So, I mean, yeah. Kim Kimbrell in the regular season, he was great. Of course, he had some issues in the postseason and Brazier at that point had like this unreal year, but nobody knew who the hell he was. Like the guy was playing over, I think he was playing in Japan. I think at one point he may have been playing indie ball, but to have three guys that you trust and you can see. Cora goes to these guys very quickly, like when he feels like the starter is going to be in a little bit of trouble. So that is a positive thing where and I give Bloom credit for that. Like they did a really nice job upgrading this bullpen. And credit to Winkowski. I didn't think I'd be yeah. saying that, but Winkowski's actually looked pretty good. He's got three appearances, he's given up one run. He's striking out guys. So, yeah, I, I don't it's it's hard to think of a time where you've had. The, the three count, right? Because it's normally like, oh, well, this guy had a really good year, but then that guy had a down year. It's always kind of the give and take there. And it, I got to say, I didn't even realize this was his first save with the Red Sox, Jansen. Now, yeah. Granted, some of that's because you see him in spring and so you're just used to seeing him in a Sox uniform, watching all the spring games and then leading up to now. But it was like, oh, right. They have a real closer that just ended the game. <laughs> that's what closers do. Right? Like you kind of forgot yeah. like, oh, of course, that word means you close the game out. Because everybody before, I mean, you go down the list of the guys that they've had as the quote unquote closer for the Red Sox since Kimbrell, and it'll make your head explode. Like these are, they're not closers. You can't, putting a guy in in the ninth inning in a three run or less situation technically means you're the closer, but no Sox guy in my eyes has really earned that title since Kimbrell. I know Barnes had the yeah. all-star appearance in, in Denver and got rocked there and then got rocked the rest of the season. Didn't even make the playoff roster in 21. But you haven't really had the guy, you know, since Craig Kimbrell in, in 16, 17 and 18. So it's nice to have Jansen back there and know that you can go to him. Even today when I don't know about you, but after the Duvall home run, I'm like, oh, OK, like this would be shocking if they lost this. Like at this yeah. point, you're up yep. six, three. It's close to the late innings. It's like, OK, this one's over. Score stays like that, even though the Sox should have added on. That's another thing I'm a little concerned about. They've had a lot of uh, two out situations where they can drive guys in and they're not getting those guys. Uh, to the plate. So yeah. that's kind of been a problem so far. But having said that, hard for me to be super upset when they're, I mean, what are they, second most runs in baseball right now? So I can't 
you don't really want to nitpick too much there. They're first in the American League in total bases. So yeah, I, I don't want to don't want to get too upset about the offense because it still starts with the pitching. But speaking of the pitching, like you mentioned, it's nice to have Jansen as a actual real closer that can close out games and not have you having a heart attack on the couch like three times a week. Yeah, and you don't have to be like right now when Whitlock comes back, hey, we got to put him in the bullpen because we don't have enough arms back there. It's like, no, they actually do have enough arms. And to the point you were making about the Duvall home run when it went to 6-3, you felt like the game was over. And I get that part of it's the Tigers, but if that was last year, you wouldn't have that feeling. You'd be like, okay, who's coming in? Is it Salamora? It's going to be, how do they blow it? How do they blow it? it? That's what it would have been last year. Diekman, Brazier, one of these guys is going to blow the game. So I think that is definitely a step in the positive direction. All right, so I got to get to something real positive with this team, which is Rafi. Who is just, oh. I mean, come on, man. He is hitting the shit out of the ball. Like <laughs> the, the four-seamer middle out where he elevates that the opposite way. Cora said that he doesn't see a lot of home runs go in that ballpark out to left center. I would actually say it's more like center left, if you get what I'm saying. Like it was more towards center than it was left. But nonetheless, it's yeah. just an absolute bomb. And if you look at it this season, he's just been so good in terms of elevating the baseball and that's been one of the things that like if you look back at Rafi and by the way now it's 15 hard hit balls out of 23 so 65.2 percent balls off the bat 95 plus one player was north of 60 last year that was Aaron Judge so that's where Rafi's at when it comes to that and the other big thing that jumps out to me is he's hitting the ball in the air so the double obviously the launch angle is 22 degrees 28 on the home run and the reason I bring that up is just if you look at him last year pre-IL trip and the reason I say pre-IL trip, because he wasn't the same player at the end of the season. Like you could tell his defense, which had improved last year, really slipped. But if you look at his numbers, they were all great. And essentially, he was at 602 in terms of his slugging percentage at the end of July before the injury. The IL trip, I believe he started on the 23rd of July. But that was fourth in Major League Baseball. Or I should say fifth in Major League Baseball at that point. It was behind Judge Alvarez, Austin Riley, and Goldschmidt. And the thing that stuck out to me, like looking back at this is, the guy is obviously, he's an unbelievable slugger on that. But one of the things that Rafi doesn't do as well as like these guys that were ahead of him in terms of slugging percentage, he doesn't hit the ball in the air as much as these other guys do, right? Because he's got such bat to, great bat to ball skills. He can just get to anything. So he's just putting everything in play. But if you look at it, so the ground ball rate for those guys that were ahead of him last year, Riley was at 33.4%, which was 137th. Alvarez 111th at 38% in terms of the ground balls. Goldschmidt 108th at 38.2%. Judge was 94th at 40.7%. Rafi was 82nd at 42.3%. So when you're looking at Riley, who I believe Raphael Devers, Devers rather is a much more talented player, he's 10 percentage points almost behind him in terms of the ground ball rate. And entering today, he was at 25% in terms of the launch angle. So now six of... 23 in terms of ground balls. So that's 26%. That's like an unreal number. And I told you like before that injury last season, he's at 42.3%. This year, he's at 23 point or 26% to begin the season, which tells me if he just does this a little bit more often, I mean, we're talking about a guy that's going to be, and he did do this a couple of years ago, well over 900 in terms of the OPS and the slugging is going to be over 600 as well. So it's just the fact that he has enough bat to ball skills to just make sure he elevates the ball more. And I do think that this is a really good sign early on that we're seeing way more of those rockets because he's always been great in terms of the hard hit balls, right? He's always yeah. like in the top five in baseball. But if we can get more of those in the air, like we may be looking at a 40 home run season, like he has the ability or at least 35 plus. Yeah, no, I I think 
you know, the total we set before the season was 38 and a half. And that, that honestly felt around right. If he stays healthy, I think the most he's had in, in a, in a season is in his career is right around there. But now the thing I look at with Devers and I'm actually going to start on a negative note, which is probably going to blow your mind here Uh-oh. is that in late in late game situations so far, he's swinging at a lot of crap pitches, but it's hard to really yeah. get super upset about it because he'll hit that crap pitch for a homer half the time. So it's like, he'll, he'll either take it off the monster or like he did today that he should have had two home runs today, by the way. I mean, that, yeah. that ball, anything, I hate that park in, in Detroit. And I know they brought sucks. the, and nobody goes either. Nobody goes. I, I forgot. I totally forgot. We did a series preview for this series. I totally forgot. It was opening day. I, I'm like, no one's going to be there. And then they have like Ben Wallace throwing out the first pitch. I'm like, oh, all right, I guess everyone's showing up to see that, but no, it's, I, I would like him to be a little more selective uh, at the plate in terms of what he's swinging at because you get Devers in a 2-1, 3-1 count, game over. Like, that's that's almost guaranteed damage every single time. Worst case, I think best case for a pitcher, you just walk him at that point. So he's a guy that you like that he's living up to the deal already. I mean, I know it's early in the season, but this is why you feel comfortable signing that contract because Rafi Devers, if he stays healthy, is going to be a Hall of Famer. I don't think that's even that bizarre to say. Like, he's on that no. path. And, you know, I, I looked it up, and I'm going to try to remember it off the top of my head, but he's in position now, uh, if this season goes as it's expected, to start in the All-Star game again at third base in the American League. And I was just curious how many guys have done that three years in a row, and the list is so short. I think in the last 60 years, guys to do that three seasons in a row for the American League was A-Rod, Cal Ripken Jr., uh, George Brett, and I'm blanking on another one, but it, it was um, uh, Schmidt with the with the Phillies, but or wow. not the Phillies, not, not even no, Machado. No, yeah, it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been Schmidt. I'm blanking on one because I'm talking American League here, but there's only four or five guys that have done that and they're all in the Hall of Fame. I know A-Rod's not, but he's, you know, he's all yeah. famer. Let's let's be honest. So that's where Rafi's going. That's the direction he's going. And, you know, to see what he does today. I don't know if you're watching the games the same way I am, where I'm just like praying that Devers does something or else they're screwed. I You don't want that to be the situation big picture, but considering you just scored one run in each of the last two games against the Pittsburgh Pirates, these Devers ABs now kind of feel like an at-bat and a half almost in terms of how much he has to do and what he has to compensate for with uh, what you expect for this lineup. But again, I say all that and Sox are like, you know, shut up, Steve. We've scored the second most runs in baseball. So... It's not, it's like it clearly before the season, the expectation was it was going to be, all right, let's, you know, let's put every, every ounce of our faith in Rafael Devers to carry the offense. Now you got Duvall. Now you got Yoshida, who's had a interesting start. It's a little up, little down, uh, a lot of ground balls, obviously for Yoshi, but the lineup seems to be a little deeper, a little bit uh, more pop than I expected, but it's still pretty early. But yeah, Devers is the guy. He's the guy. Hard hit percentage is 60% so far. He's crushing everything, 957 OPS. But I, I would like him to lay off some of the, the crap pitches in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, especially in these close games, because you got to get pitchers in bad counts against you to, to do real damage. But credit to Devers, though, because it's you always feel like an idiot uh, being negative about Rafi Devers, because then he'll just make you look like a fool. He'll go three for four with... You know, being like a, a triple shy of the cycle. And it's like I, I sound like an idiot anytime I actually complain about Rafi Devers, but that's my only critique out of the gate here. No, that's a fair point. And I would say to your point about Duvall, like I don't think anybody was higher on the Duvall signing than me, Pro. Like I loved it just because he's somebody that is an elite defensive player, won the gold glove two years ago out in right field. Now, the concern going forward for me with Duvall is not like 
his ability to play center field, he's clearly good enough there. The question is just, he's a big guy. Like, he's a moose. Like, he's is he going to be able to hold up there throughout the season playing there pretty much every day? Or I guess until eventually, if Story comes back in, say, August or something, and then you can put Kike back out there. But that would be my only concern when it comes to him, is just can he hold up from a health perspective? Because now he's off to a ridiculous start, another home run today, and he hit the walk-off in that Saturday game, the game that Sale was a mess in. And if you look at it now, six of his 20 batted balls are barreled up, which is 30%. The leaders last year were Judge Alvarez and Schwarber. Those were the three guys over 20%, and he's at 30% right now. Not saying that that's going to hold up, but those are three of the top five guys in home runs. And Duvall's a guy that if the timing's there, we know that he's got that super big launch angle. He can hit the ball out of the ballpark. So I think this is a really good sign for the Red Sox because think about this lineup if they didn't have Duvall. You mentioned the struggles of Yoshida. Verdugo's been okay. He had a really big start to the season. He's been okay. But other than that, it's really been Raphael Devers and Duvall. Turner's doing his thing. Like Turner doesn't strike out and all that. Like I love him in the three hole hitting behind Raffi. But all in all, Cassis has had a really slow start as well. So this Duvall thing has been a massive signing for the Sox. And I'm really surprised that he didn't have a bigger market because this guy went right, has been a really good player. Yeah, it was the one year, seven mil, I think. Yeah, was the deal. I mean, that that's and it was I'm late. I know it was late. He was around for a while. And who knows? You know, we'll see how the season goes right now. We have him on pace to hit 75 home runs. That's obviously going to happen. Uh, so I'm excited that he's going to pass Barry Bonds and break the record this year. That chase is going to be fun, but he's just been a nice, it's been a nice change of pace because you haven't <laughs> you, had these new guys do anything. The new guys are like, it'll be like you Chang last year, adding him to the line. It's like, well, that's not going to do anything. And then you call Casas up. He hits 198. Where is he now? He's at 130. This season goes 0 for 4 yeah. in the, uh, the series debut here against the Tigers. So yeah, it's, it's been needed, uh, to say the least. When he's in the lineup, they average seven runs a game. I don't think that's any coincidence. He's missed one game and they scored one run. That's kind of what happens. It seems like he's somebody that you're going to need to bring in Yoshida, to bring in Turner, to bring in Devers. One thing with Yoshida, though, that I've been really impressed with is that even if it's bad contact, he makes a lot of contact. Like he, his bat to ball, it's, it's, he's frequently either, you know, grounding out or the fly. He's putting himself in position for stuff to happen, for chaos to happen, which it has. I think three times already in the ninth inning, there's been an error by the opposing team on a ball that Yoshida hit. Now, yeah. I don't know. That's the dumbest stat ever. But like, it, you know, that could happen to literally anybody, but he keeps the game alive against the Orioles and the ball drops and then Duvall hits the walk off. I'm sure that was the plan to hit a lazy fly ball to left field, have it fall, and then Duvall will hit the two run shot. But I know the uh, on opening day gets the, the hard hit grounder that should have been a double play. It doesn't end up being a double play and Duvall would have had a chance to walk that one off as well. Um, and even the finale against the Pirates is another hard hit grounder and then. Uh, it's an error by the Pirates, and he's on base. So the guy seems like he gets on base a decent amount, or at least has the ability to with the amount of contact he makes. Got to elevate the ball a little bit. Got to get uh, the launch angle up there. But as of right now, I I look at this lineup, and I feel way more comfortable than I thought I would, Barrett. And I don't know if you're yeah. in the same spot, but it's if Duvall can do this, Casas really has to get going. Like, I don't – where are you at in terms of, like, how long you're okay with, well, he's, he's a rookie, you know? Like, he's – this guy's played in the Olympics. He's been their top pro hitting prospect for a while now in terms of a guy that we expected to be up by now and is up by now. I'm not going to have a super long leash for him because my expectations for him are really high. 
Yeah, I'm with you when it comes to Cassis. Like, they got to get him going. The thing about Yoshida, too, <laughs> I mean, first of all, uh, great point on Duvall. Like, if nothing else, we're going to have a home run chase at the end of the season, chasing <laughs> yeah. down history, right? He's At least he'll break Aaron Judge's American League record this season. Oh, he'll have that awesome. by the All-Star break, probably. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not worried about that. Yeah. And I'm totally with you on Yoshida. I think it's just a matter of time with him because you look at it, and I was texting Lou about this earlier today, like, during the game. But, yeah, I mean, you look at some of the stuff, like the launch angle you mentioned, third lowest in baseball, it's negative, minus point. 81 and Not he great. was topping 69.6 percent of the balls and we see it like he's getting on top of those fastballs and just like pounding him into the ground and what he's striking out less than seven percent of the time so I think eventually it's going to come with Yoshida I'm not really worried about him but the cast this thing now as you mentioned it's just he hasn't really even made solid contact outside of that home run like out of his 18 batted balls just four a hard hit that's 22.2 percent Two qualified hitters were south of 22% last year, and he's at 41.5% last year as a guy that just got up to the major leagues late in the season. But something's just a little bit off with the timing. Even if you look at that pop-up that he hit where he got a pretty good piece of it, but he got under it. Like, so it, yeah. it comes off the bat at like 101 miles an hour because he's so big, but he just got under it. So I just think that it's a timing thing with him right now where he's just not getting, he's not barreling up anything. So but the problem is now for this Red Sox lineup, like they need to get him going because the bottom of the lineup, I, I just don't have a lot of faith in guys like, uh, no offense to Kike Hernandez. He's very, very streaky. I don't have a lot of faith there. I'm really starting to question whether or not Christian Arroyo is an everyday player. I, I don't see it right now. He just, his approach is as if he slugs 600, like the way that he swings at everything. It's just like a little too much for me. And I thought the McGuire thing, like obviously a couple hits in the game on Thursday, but the Maguire, we know the guy that we saw last year. That's not who Reese Maguire has been throughout his career. So I think Cassis really is, could be a game changer for this lineup if they can get him going. But I mean, I would give him a long string here, unless it's like, you know, if there's a tough lefty like we saw, you can put Justin Turner at first base and get him a day off when it comes to that. But I think you just got to let him play it out. I just, I, I just, I don't want to get caught in the dollback trap here where dollback, no. you know what I mean? Like dollback, no, like this, this guy's a legit prospect. I think it's just going to take a little time. Just like we mentioned with like Yoshida, like he's got to get the ball in the air more. I think with Cassis, he's just trying to get his footing at this particular point in time. So I haven't lost faith, but I am at the point like, all right, man, like you're sunbathing, you're painting your fingers. You got all these quotes like, come on now, like you got to get going. See, that's the thing where it's like, whether this is fair or not, if you're doing all this herky jerky, quirky stuff, you got to perform, right? It's like, yep. and I'm not saying that's probably like the, the old timer of me. I'm like, hey, come on. If you're painting your nails, you got to hit some bombs too. Like, <laughs> do whatever you want. I don't, I don't actually care. But at no, the I don't end either. Of the day, I don't yeah. actually care. But it's like, I'm, I'm kind of speaking like the players would, right? It's like, who the hell does this kid think he is? You know, yeah. hitting a career like 150 and he's like lounging in the outfield, getting some, catching some rays there. So I, I, I think that is going to creep in a little bit. Casas is a very confident kid. I really don't think he gets rattled. See, that's a big difference with him and Bobby. I think Bobby wore it. I think the mental game of Bobby crushed him. Yeah. And I don't think Casas is going to have that issue. That homer you talk about, it is tough because it probably should have been a foul ball. Cora said after the game, he's never seen anything like that, where a ball was like that foul and the wind blew it that fair. Yeah. Um, even having said that, I think it was a unicorn homer. I don't think it would have been gone anywhere else but Fenway. So it's like... Yeah, all right. He's got a homer, but not really. That has an asterisk next to it. It's like, hey, he kind of had a home run, but that's when everyone was hitting a home run. You just had to hit a home run to stay in shape, as Eck would say. But yeah, the Casas thing, I'm I don't 
have a long leash for him uh, because of, like I mentioned, the expectations. Like, I, I feel like he's he's set the bar there, too. You know, yeah. he had an interview with the Boston Globe. Really good piece, honestly. It was mostly about his cooking routine and how he's lost weight because of uh, changing his diet. But he had said that, like, 30 home runs is, shouldn't be a big deal to me. Like, that, I should be able to do that. I, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically saying I should be able to do that with relative ease. It's like, all right, you want to say that. You got to earn those words. You can't just be throwing that stuff out there. Like, if you're going to say 30 home runs shouldn't be a problem, which no Red Sox player did all last season. I think Devers had the lead with, like, 26, 27. Yeah. Uh, you got to earn that. So it's it's still early. It's uh, it's cold. I get that. But now you're you're going to be playing at the Trop. You're going to be playing in play, places where you can't use the cold excuse. He's got to get going, and I expect he will, but I, I didn't think he'd have the slowest start. Yeah, and the thing, the biggest difference between Cassis and Dahlback is Cassis is not going to chase a lot of pitches. Like, Dahlback yeah. would just go fishing constantly. That's one of the real strengths of Tristan Cassis. So I'm with you, man. If, you, if you're talking about 30 home runs, you can't come out with this slow of a start. Like, you got to get going at some point. But all in all, Peralta, I just think before I let you go here, it got a little ugly this week, especially against the Pirates. They could have easily lost two of three to the Orioles. But I feel like based on the injuries to start the season with Garrett Whitlock and with Brian Bayo, and based on, yeah, Tampa's like beating everybody. Like they're not losing right now. But the Blue Jays got off to a rough start as well. I wish the Orioles weren't so frisky like I used to like when they you could just beat up on the Orioles every time you play them. I, I feel know. okay. I feel okay. Like let me see the rotation Two more times through. Let me see the rotation with Whitlock and Bayo. I feel good about the bullpen. I feel pretty good about the lineup. But all in all, I think it's like kind of what you expected to start this season. I feel okay about where they're at. Yeah, it does feel like this team needs a 0-2 devil raise in their division. Like they they need yeah. that. Oh, we're just going to pound these guys and add those wins. I understand you play the ALEs less, but you don't really have any breaks in your own division, which sucks. And I'd mentioned this on on ITM, but and it's it's just like a stupid Steve thought, but it's I look we look at the Rays, I think, with the goggles of knowing where they play. And and that Tropicana field impacts them more negatively than any field has ever impacted a baseball team in our lives. The Rays are are legit. And if they played in like Philly or something, like we wouldn't talk about the Rays the way that we talk about the Rays. But because they play in Tampa or, you know, St. Pete, they don't even play in Tampa and they're in that dump. It's like, ah, eh, you don't really take them that seriously. The Red Sox are kind of lacking that. It's kind of that Patriots and the AFC East thing where, you know, you're beaten up on on crap teams and not to say that that's a huge reason for the dynasty, but obviously it helped them. They don't have the luxury of that now uh, in the AL East, which I think is going to be noticeable as the season goes along. But yeah, just weather the storm, which, you know, they're doing in Detroit. They're not going to have that opening day crowd. Now that that made a huge difference anyway. You're going to have probably some cold games here uh, coming up. But um, yeah, just weather the storm. And ideally, by the end of, of April, you're in a decent position. We did look at the May schedule. I hate going too far ahead here. And it, it could get it could get ugly, Barrett. It could, could get dicey. You got the Jays, you got the Phillies, the Braves, the Cardinals, the Mariners, the Padres. You're playing some really good teams at the start of May. So ideally, the Red Sox can pad some wins here, uh, get a, a respectable record going into the start of May. Yeah, and the Jays and the Rays, those are the two teams last year that the Red Sox just couldn't beat. They could yeah. not beat those two teams. So those are going to be massive series. All right, that is Steve Peralt from the ITM podcast. Peralt, thanks for coming on early in the season, man. I appreciate it. I wish that Chris Sale gave us a bigger storyline after that game, but still a ton of fun getting caught up. And man, I'm enjoying it. I mean, the pitch clock, I'm definitely enjoying that. The speed of the game is quicker. I had fun when I was at 
Fenway for the game last Saturday. So I'm enjoying it so far, man. Yeah, let me know when you're at Fenway. We'll we'll link up, watch a game, and that's the key. It's been more enjoyable. It's it's early, but it's been more enjoyable. That's all we ask for. We spend so much time with this team. Can they at least not suck? That's all we're asking for. So far, it's around 500. You want a little better, but I'll take it, Barrett. I'll take this. <laughs> all right, that is Steve Prault from the ITM Podcast. Prault, thanks so much for the time, man. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Steve Peralt on the Sox and enjoy talking with Tom Giles as well. Getting into the Celtics. Cannot wait for the postseason, which gets underway, what, a week from Saturday? Like the regular season is almost over. Cannot wait for the postseason. And despite some of the issues the Red Sox have had this season so far, I've enjoyed the early part of the season, especially with the pitch clock in place. All right. By the way, if you want to get a voicemail on that number, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. But let's get to our offthepike at gmail.com mailbox today. And that's where we bring in Jamie McClellan, the producer of Off the Pike. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing great, Brian. Coming off a Red Sox win always makes me happy. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I cannot complain. I, I wanted to panic about Chris Sale, or I, I was almost about to panic about Chris Sale, but then he got it back on track. So I'm good, man. I'm ready to go. Hey, man, if you can get three runs against the Tigers, I guess I have to take it. Yeah. Twenty-five well, million. We'll see. Like we were chatting about with Pro. We'll see. Like I, I'm going to give this thing some time. I feel like. Yeah, fair enough. I've been more on the Chris Sale is going to be back thing than anybody else. So I cannot give up yet. This is I, true. I can't. I, yes, I got to feel good about this, man. At least he's missing bats. Okay. But when he doesn't miss bats, they usually go to the ballpark. Not a good recipe right now. I'll say that. Well, we will turn our attention to some uh, some better teams in Boston. We got a question from Barry M. Barry writes, hi, Brian. You've done a great job delineating both by the numbers and by the eye test. Rob Williams' critical impact on the Celtics' chances of making a deep playoff run. What did you think of Coach Missoula increasing his minutes from the 16 to 20 minute range up to 31 against the Raptors last night? Uh, it seems like a test run in the 20 to 28 minute range would have been more prudent, a bit scary. No. What do you think? 
Well, part of it, and we were actually chatting with Giles about this earlier, is part of it, I think, is they have to get him ready for the postseason, right? Like, if he's going to be a guy that is a game wrecker and that's going to destroy opposing offenses and that's going to do his thing offensively, catching lobs, et cetera, you got to build that endurance back up coming back from the injury. So, quite frankly, I didn't have a problem with it. The other component to that is the fact that Al Horford, it was the second night of a back-to-back, so he gets the night off. So that was the perfect time to keep Rob out there higher than his ordinary minute range, if you will. So I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. I just think the one big question, and we sort of got into this with Giles, is how they're going to handle this in the postseason in terms of, are you going to stick with Derek White or is it going to depend on matchup? Like if it's Miami in the first round where they've had some real issues shooting from the perimeter, right? I mean, it's one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the NBA, I think you would have to lean towards starting Rob Williams in that series, right? Because he can play in that rover role. So when Bam's trying to get to the basket and get to that little push shot that he has, which he devastated with the Celtics with, he devastated the Celtics with that shot a couple of years ago, you're going to need Rob to come in and be the help defender. When Jimmy Butler's driving to the basket, you need Rob to be the help defender. So if that's the matchup and it looks like that's going to be the case, like I said earlier, I'm hoping it's the Hawks, but if it's the Heat, I'd go with Robert Williams back in the starting lineup because I think Derek White... We've seen it. He plays well in every lineup. He's going to adjust perfectly fine. So I think if you get that matchup, you go with Robert Williams back in the starting lineup. That defense with him and Al on the court together has just been devastating whenever they've been on the court over the past two years. So I would go back to Rob in the starting lineup. So I think that has to be part of the calculus with Joe Mazzulla. Yeah, I'm with you. I think if you can get him over 30 minutes, you might as well. So you better start now. Yeah, I mean, you might as well. He's actually healthy at the end of the season. Like yeah. This isn't last year where we're in a situation where he got hurt before the playoffs. This year, he got hurt earlier. Now he's back. Ride this thing out, okay? Because who knows, Jamie, how long this guy's going to be healthy like the rest like of his he's career. Only year. It's yeah. every year. Like, maybe yeah. this is the good thing, that they got this injury a little bit earlier, and he's good to go for the postseason. So, yeah, time hey, better. by all means, come on, because we know the impact that guy makes. I hear you. I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see him swatting balls and such. Um, okay, we got another question. This is about the Bruins' playoff chances. This is from Oscar in Boston. Oscar writes, it looks like one of the biggest improvements for the Bruins this year is that the third and fourth lines are improved. In most other sports, this wouldn't be a huge improvement. You got way better with your six offensive linemen, your fourth outfielder, better scoring options off the bench. Great. But these are the sorts of improvements that typically push a team over the top. It's usually because your superstars found another gear or a new guy really pops off. Um, one of my buddies was saying that in hockey, especially in the playoffs against good teams, everybody has a good first and second line. So the third and fourth lines are really where you need to separate yourself. Do you agree with this? Just curious from the perspective of someone who watches a lot of sports, but not a ton of hockey. Thanks. I agree with it because here's the thing. And we chatted with Andrew Raycroft from Nesson earlier this week. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear that interview, go back and listen, because that is the difference between this Bruins team and even the Bruins team that was one win away from hoisting the Stanley Cup trophy back in 2019. This team is deeper. And what it allows you to do is it gives the opponent more of a thought, right? Because it was always, if you had home ice, you're putting your shutdown line, whether it be Eric Stahl or going back to the Blue Series, right, where in the Stanley Cup final, it's Ryan O'Reilly matched up against Patrice Bergeron. Like, you know, you're putting that big, heavy defensive centerman on Patrice Bergeron and just giving him hell for a series, right? But now with the Bruins, they have two elite lines. When you're talking about the second line of Krejci and Pasternak, and Zach has been really good with that group. So 
which group do you want to put your shutdown defensive line on, so to to speak? And then the other component to this is Charlie Coyle over the past couple of years, like last year, he was overtaxed playing a lot on the second line. Now he's back to being on the third line. He's been exceptional. And we outlined this with Razor in the defensive zone this season. So he gives you a matchup to go against some of the elite top lines in the NHL. And the other factor with this Bruins team is you have Lindholm and McAvoy, who are elite defensemen, and Orlov has been really good and has been really good throughout his career as well. So I do think the depth of this Bruins team is which separates them from years past. The one thing that we have to look out for the past or the next couple games before we get into the postseason, what does this power play look like? Because that's been the biggest issue for this team. And the one other thing is the Hall situation. Like if Hall's back, okay. You're really cooking with gasoline because you're talking about Taylor Hall, Charlie Coyle, and Bertuzzi on that last, on that third line, I should say. So that's a really interesting dynamic that you can bring to the table. So I feel really confident about where the Bruins are at right now. And it didn't really take me that long to get on board with that. Like even at the beginning of the season, people are like, oh, it's kind of fluky, the record, et cetera. I'm like, well, look at the third line. Yeah. Look who's on the third line. That That's the difference from where you've been at years in years past of this Bruins team. So I feel really confident about the Bees entering the postseason. And I love the fact that Toronto and Tampa are going to have to battle it out in that second round before they even get to the Bruins. And the Bruins are going to have a much more favorable matchup. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet third line. I like our chances with that. And the other thing that separates the goalies. And we got the best goalies. Yeah, that's true, too. Although if like we're going into a series as fans and it's against Tampa, I would still have a lot more faith in Vasilevsky than Omar, considering just the fact that, I mean, he's been the gold standard of NHL goalies over the past, what, three to four years, even longer than that. The guy's absolutely incredible. All right. That is Jamie McClellan, the producer of Off the Pike. Jamie, great stuff with the emails, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in to 617-396-7172. And if you do want to email us, you can certainly send one to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat with you guys on Sunday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.